We are Blaster Zone, and we're here to make you think about the box office and get sad and stuff. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Wow. Yeah. What an episode we've got for you guys today. But before we dig into that, Ian, how are you doing this week? I'm doing all right. I'm hanging in there. Hanging in is what we do. And that's what I'm doing. How about you? I'm hanging in there as well. I'm excited. I'm getting my first vaccine on Monday. So oh, getting getting exciting. ready. First of two. So I still got a long road ahead of me before I can start French kissing strangers. But God willing, soon I'll be able to go out there and just lick whatever I want. Yeah. That's what you can do, right? After the vaccine. It's something to look forward to, finally. Yeah, light at the end of the tunnel. So I'm looking forward to that. And aside from that, just living the life, same as always. Did you get a chance to watch anything not for the podcast this week that you happen to enjoy and want to talk about? I did. I managed to squeeze in a few things. And the thing that I brought as my show and tell today... I thought it was an interesting contrast. It's kind of the opposite of today's movie, of our loud, hilarious, action-packed movie. I watched Margin Call, 2011's Margin Call, written and directed by J.C. Shandor. Had not seen it before. Really interesting movie, partly because it's kind of quiet and subtle, and it's sort of a financial thriller about a brokerage house or some kind of financial institution that melts down over the course of one 24-hour night and day as they realize that they're over leveraged and the market is about to collapse. And it's real interesting. It's real subtle. There's not a lot of action. There's no karate fights. There's not even any many wordy outbursts. And for the first movie by this director, it's it's quite impressively sort of confident and, and understated. Now, I've got to ask, did you also listen to that episode of another movie podcast, The Big Picture with Brian Koppelman? Yes. This I got is a lot of you... inspiration from that episode of the first movies of all these Gen X directors. Because I have not seen Margin Call, but I listened to that episode and it sounded like a movie I'd really enjoy. So I did make a note to uh, seek it out in the next couple of weeks because it's definitely on my short list now of the movies I want to try to make some time for. Yeah, it has all these familiar things of sort of high powered actors playing these roles of financial executives that you would think that they would really wring out all the emotion out of them. But it's one notch more subtle than all that. And so it feels kind of interesting for that reason. Right. Like the stockbroker with a big name actor is such like a trope now, I feel like. Right. You had, of course, you have Alec Baldwin and Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross as like the exactly. salesman who just chews up the scenery. And then Ben Affleck kind of riffed on that in Boiler Room with his little scene there. You had McConaughey and Wolf of Wall Street. It's become kind of like the showcase for these older dramatic male actors to like show off their acting. Yeah. You know that any of these guys could unload on you with a crazy dramatic scene at any moment and they all kind of hold back. And the movie doesn't do those big speeches. It kind of lets the the story, which is complex financial stuff, like it lets that sort of play out with minimal exposition and explanation. It's fun. Okay. I definitely recommend it. Awesome. I will check that out. I watched a very strange movie. I don't know if what you would call it a thriller, a comedy, a romantic thrillomedy. I don't know. It's okay. a movie called Happily that is somewhat new. It came out in 2021, a year that's still relatively young, so it can't be that old. No. But a very good cast. You've got some ringers, Joel McHale, Carrie Bechet, Stephen Root, Natalie Morales, like all these kind of powerhouse actors. Even Breck and Meyer showed up out of nowhere 
Franklin and Bash's own, Breckenmeyer, Paul Shear. And it's about like a married couple that is too into each other and it's very off-putting to the people around them. And Stephen Root shows up one day and offers them a solution to this. Like he, he basically tells them they need to inject themselves with a syringe that will make them miserably married like everybody else. There's something wrong with their you know, genetic makeup that makes them not act like married couples are supposed to act. And I don't want to spoil anything more than that, but from there, there's intrigue and drama and some twists and turns. It, it fumbles the ending in a major way, but it had oh. me up until that. I mean, it's never a good thing when Stephen Root shows up in your life unexpectedly. Right. And he's dressed like a guy from the Adjustment Bureau. He's like very old timey and he's got the hat. So <laughs> you just know he's up to no good. But then like the movie is... Just kind of, there's no resolution to it. And I know sometimes that can be the goal of the director, but I feel like they wrote this really interesting premise. And then it ends like mm. with no explanation. And that was a little bit of a letdown for me. But overall, that. I'd give it like a six out of 10. I'd say it's worth your time. It's a short movie. So definitely worth checking out if you're into the, any of these actors. Natalie Zay is in it too. From uh, I'm a big fan of hers from Justified. So yeah, it's worth checking out, but just temper your expectations for the ending because I don't think it quite lands it. Yeah, nothing like low expectations. I think you've set me up to possibly enjoy this movie. Perfect. That's what I'm here for. Low expectations. Except when it comes to our <laughs> podcast, we have the highest expectations, of course. We are excited to talk about this movie today. Scott Pilgrim versus the world, 2010's own. Talk about high expectations. High expectations. And I think it, it delivered on them. Yeah, it delivered. Can we deliver? That's what I'm worried about. This is like a movie that I love and I know how many people out there love it. We've actually already seen the, the enthusiasm start to bubble up on Twitter. And so now I feel like this incredible weight of responsibility to address this movie in the proper respect that it deserves. The reverence. Well, we put up the bat signal on Twitter. We asked our followers, what's your favorite movie that bombed at the box office? Some ulterior motives, to be fair. We're trying to see what movies people want to hear about. And Scott yeah. Pilgrim was by far one of the top vote getters. So we already planned to cover it, but that just kind of reinforced that we needed to do it. And we needed yeah, to do that it pushed soon. Yeah, that pushed us over the edge and we just dove into it. Especially now that's getting a theatrical re-release with some a redone sound design, I believe, is mostly the changes that have been made to it. Oh, interesting. They've done some work on the sound design of the movie. So they're putting it back in theaters for the somewhat late 10th anniversary. And that's going to be uh, the end of April, I believe. You'll be able to catch it, which is when this episode will be coming out. So Yeah, it makes sense. That's what I did with my birthday. That's probably what everybody did with their 2020 birthdays. So let's uh, try again. Mulligan exactly. in 2021. Yeah, 2020 didn't happen. So this movie is now 10 years old. Should we get into, you want to do a quick rundown of how the movie came to be? Yeah, let's All hear right. how did this movie happen? So in July of 2003, Brian Lee O'Malley would publish Scott Pilgrim's Precious Little Life, the first graphic novel in a series about a 23-year-old Toronto musician named after a 1997 song by the Canadian band Plumtree. Not very original, but go on. He would go on to publish six total books in the series before eventually retiring the character in 2010. Immediately after the first volume was completed, talks began about producing a film adaptation. Edgar Wright was brought on board to direct immediately after completing his film Shaun of the Dead, and Michael Bacall, who at the time had only written the 2001 drama Manic and the 2003 comedy slash thriller Bookies was hired as the screenwriter in May 2005. Casting wouldn't begin until June of 2008, and principal photography began in Toronto during March of 2009, wrapping up in August of that same year. The movie had a budget of about $90 million, which was six times larger than the $15 million Wright was given for Hot Fuzz. Six times the heat, six times the fuzz. As a lot of the movie revolves around live music performances, 
and Battles of the Bands, original songs would need to be written for the film, and an all-star team of musicians was recruited to help shape the sound, including Beck, Metric, and Broken Social Scene. The film was finally widely released on August 15, 2010, and finished its opening weekend with a gross of $10.5 million, only good for a fifth at the box office, as it was competing with other high-profile new releases like The Expendables and Eat, Pray, Love, Eat my shorts. as well as The Other Guys, which was released the week before and continued to show strong returns. Return to my While reviews were good, the film would limp out of theaters with a worldwide gross of only $48.1 million, firmly establishing itself as a beloved box office babam. Oh, man. Scott, yeah. Come on, what Scott. happened to you, buddy? Real bummer. Total bummer that this movie did not get more attention. But, you know, it's kind of a difficult concept to wrap your head around if you're not familiar with the comic. I could see it seeming a little strange to you. Yeah, there is just a huge amount of stuff in this movie, as only Edgar Wright can wedge into the frames of a film. And it's a lot. So to people who love it, it's an incredible gift because the movie is so rewatchable. It's so dense. It's so full of enjoyable moments. Every moment on the screen offers you something, but maybe in some ways that works against it and makes it harder to penetrate for the average person who's coming in, not that excited, not that clear on what they're going to see. Right. I mean, we could spend an hour just listing all the Easter eggs in this movie and going through them one by one, and that would be a perfectly fun way to spend an hour, but we're not going to do that because if you're listening to this, you should go either watch it for yourself or you've already seen it and enjoy it. And those Easter eggs are your fun little things to discover on your own. But it's, it is a very dense movie and the barrier to entry to really kind of immerse yourself in the world, I guess, could be higher than your average romantic comedy. I don't even know what you would call this, an action romantic comedy, martial arts, music, extravaganza. Yeah, it's got everything. It's got literally everything. And it's a ton of fun. What was your experience with this movie before this podcast. You'd seen it already, I'm, I'm sure. I had seen it and tucked it away, but I think I didn't have the context. I don't think I saw it with anybody. I saw it when it came to some video service. So it wasn't in the midst of any particular sort of personal social hype around it. So I just saw it isolated like, oh, I remember hearing about that. That sounded like something I wanted to watch. And I watched it and I was like, oh, this is really cool and crazy. And I liked it. And then I just sort of tucked it away because I didn't have anyone to talk about it with at the time. And uh, it wasn't really until these recent rewatches that I'm like, I realized how much is in it. I came to love Edgar Wright more since that first watch and uh, and just found it easier to appreciate everything that's in there now. And now it's uh, just totally love it. Right. It's a very easy movie to like spend hours with your friends discussing. And I could see if you don't have that kind of relationship to the film, it might not be as immediately endearing. But I saw Hot Fuzz in theaters and just loved it immensely. I had discovered mm-hmm. Shaun of the Dead on DVD at a friend's house and loved that movie, obviously, then saw Hot Fuzz because I was a fan of the actors and the director. Yeah. So by the time Scott Pilgrim came out, I was already firmly entrenched as an Edgar Wright stan and went to see it in theaters twice. Really enjoyed it. I had no um, exposure to the comic book or graphic novels before that. So I was just going into it as a fan of Edgar Wright okay. and to a lesser extent, Michael Sarah, some other actors in the movie I also liked, but I was a big Arrested Development fan. I'd enjoyed Nick and sure. Nora's Infinite Playlist. So I was on board from that. And yeah, I loved it immediately. Bought the DVD the day it came out, bought the Blu-ray when that was the move and have just like revisited it every couple of years, I think at least since then. Nice. Yeah. It holds up. I mean, it's got so much in it, as we say, like it's, it's a great movie to have as a favorite because you can just continually get more out of it. Yeah, exactly. There's something new to see every single time you watch this movie. So do you want to run through the story and kind of explain why Scott Pilgrim is versing the world? All right. Well, Scott Pilgrim is dating a high schooler. 
Her name is Knives Chow, played by Ellen Wong, and she's 17. Scott is 22. He plays bass in the rock band Sex bob and he lives in Toronto in a one-bed apartment with his roommate Wallace Wells, who's played by Karen Culkin. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a girl named Ramona Flowers, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, appears in Scott's dreams and then appears in his real life, and he pursues her obsessively. While competing in a battle of the band show, Scott is attacked by Ramona's ex-boyfriend, Matthew Patel. Scott wins the fight, but he learns that Ramona has seven evil exes, and if he wants to keep dating her, he'll have to defeat them all. So right away, this movie's throwing all kinds of stylistic choices at you, and it's very bombastic and loud. Yes. Even like the sound mixing of when Sex bob first performs in the living room, I feel like it jumps up like so many decibels. The dialogue is kind of at a low setting. Uh-huh. So then when that song kicks in, it like really hits you. It's a rock movie. The movie wants to rock you, and it does. It's mixed in such a way that, yeah, the songs really do jump out at you. And the songs rule. The music in this movie is great. We'll, I'm sure we'll dive into that more. But it's and like the Sex bob songs are obviously amazing, but also kind of like sloppy and not overproduced to the point where it feels realistic that this would be like a garage band in Toronto with a bunch of people in their early 20s making the songs. Yeah. If that's all the movie had was the music, it would still be a real accomplishment. Because the songs are so good. They're so tonally right. They feel like they come out of these bands. The actors feel like they're in the bands. I mean, obviously they had the actors sing the songs in the movie. They had them learn to play the ones that didn't already know, like Michael Sarah. And so it just, that is a huge accomplishment. It just, the music is so organic and real in this movie. And it's also kicks ass. Like that's one more reason to rewatch the movie is to hear the songs again, because you actually like them. Oh yeah. I've had the soundtrack. I've had several songs from the soundtrack on Spotify playlists for as long as I've had Spotify. Mm. So I definitely go back to it a lot. Kind of the elephant in the room surrounding this movie is Scott Pilgrim, the movie. Pretty awesome. Scott Pilgrim, the character, kind of the worst. Right. Can we agree on that? He kind of sucks. He is a challenging dude. Not the uh, the shining hero you kind of hope for. He he has his flaws to be to put it mildly at best. He's dating a 17 year old as a 22 year old. He brags about that quite a bit about dating a teenager still in high school to his friends. It's weird. He seems to be a bit of a womanizer. There's a lot of callbacks to other people he's dated. He cheats on his girlfriend. He seems to be a leech on his friends. He doesn't have any money. He lives in his friend Wallace's apartment and has no possessions there. So he's kind of, he's just not the best. He doesn't really seem to be a go-getter. He is a flawed guy. Michael Sarah has to do a lot of work to like balance that, keep those things in the air because he's he has, certainly has his charms. But yeah, he has all these flaws. But I found that personally, I thought that part of it worked. That's one hypothesis as to like why people didn't get into this movie and first watches or a broad audience didn't follow it because it's, it's uh, you know, people have called him an anti-hero. I think he's just a classically flawed hero with really meaty flaws that he needs to work on. But he has enough charm and sort of gumption that he keeps you on the hook until he can get through it. Right. I also think, first of all, he's got one shitty Pac-Man story that he keeps telling. Yeah. And I think he might be holding out on his friends because his bass guitar is a Rickenbacker 4003, which is a $2,000 bass guitar, but he doesn't, you know, he can't afford like a coat hooker. Yeah. Yeah. Those aren't cheap. Not even at the pawn shop. You're going to pay for a Rickenbacker. Yeah. I've been playing bass guitar since I was in like the sixth grade and Cliff Burton, who played Rickenbackers, was my entry into the bass guitar world and seeing Scott Pilgrim basically claim poverty with two loaves of bread under his arms, as it were, with this this gem of a bass guitar in his possession. Just rubbed me a little bit wrong. 
but you know that's but it looks awesome it looks awesome it's just a beautiful looking guitar so yeah and then the introduction to ramona what do you what is your take on ramona's entrance into the movie i actually did a bunch of rewatching just to try to figure out what the movie intended because you know she appears in this dream sequence but then she cops to it when she meets him in person that she's using his head as this subspace highway that goes through his head and you're like is she joking? Is she being literal? What's the reality of this movie? That's one of the things that I actually do think probably challenged audiences. And it's rewarding when you stick with it, but it's weird at first. Like what is real in this movie? What is not? And the subspace thing is part of what's hard to crack. Yeah, it's definitely an enhanced kind of reality where sometimes it seems grounded in the same rules we have. And then other times it's clearly cartoonish and over the top and adheres to like video game rules. And again, that's Edgar Wright really going for a stylish film that looks awesome and he has a chance to bust out all these cool effects. But it does make for a kind of confusing narrative because kind of like what we talked about with Last Action Hero, it makes you question what the stakes are. When he breaks Matthew Patel into a thousand coins or whatever, is Matthew (laughs) Patel dead now? Like, is Scott Pilgrim just killing all these people? Or are they just like, do they disappear back to their home? Do they get another life? Like, do they get a chance to respawn somewhere? Yeah, I think I did probably find that a little bit disturbing on my first watch. Now I accept that as like, Oh, cool coins. But um, yeah, is he dead now? Like he's a young man, had his life snatched away. Did he really deserve to be murdered? I know he, he started the fight, but. But then, yeah, then the who has responsibility for the fights is another whole thing that we'll have to get into. Right. Because at a certain point, Scott knows he has to fight all these people and continues on. So he's voluntarily killing these people at a certain point, if that is indeed what's happening here. <laughs> I did think the email gag with Matthew Patel was hilarious when he sends Scott an email telling yes. him like how it's all going to go down and Scott blows it off. And is then surprised when it all happens as was promised. Yeah. So many, I mean, just one of so many things that there's some versions of these in the original comic, which I wasn't aware of, but I did a little, I read the first of the six graphic novels that inspired this movie. Ian is dedicated, folks. He's yeah. doing the extra work. It was free. It was free with my Kindle Unlimited subscription. I got to take advantage of that. But yeah, I mean, this is one of the things about this movie is that like the story of the production is Edgar Wright read the first, he actually had some kind of like pre-release copy of that first graphic novel and he right away knew he wanted to do it. And you can see it totally spoke to him as a perfect fit for what he's about and what he likes to do. And yeah, those jokes just are elevated. They were already cool in the comics version. And then he took them to this Edgar Wright 10 level and just kills all these jokes. They're so good. It's interesting to say that like this speaks to Edgar Wright's style because I'm not sure I agree only because what I think is a calling card of Edgar Wright's movies, especially up to this point is like taking a genre and turning it up to 11. And I don't know if you can say Scott Pilgrim has a genre like Shaun of the Dead is a zombie movie, but played mostly for laughs. It still has emotional and scary moments that hit like they're supposed to, but it's still, it's very recognizable in that genre of zombie movies. Mm -hmm. And then hot fuzz is clearly a riff on like eighties and nineties action cop movies and buddy comedies and it just takes that and turns it up but scott pilgrim is just like it's pulling from so many different elements i don't know that it felt like a natural fit for wright's style before i saw it yeah it's kind of putting him in front of a smorgasbord and he goes to town and all the aspects of it because as we said the music part of it kicks ass the action part of it kicks ass the indie relationship part of it also kicks ass the rom-com elements kick ass but yeah it's bigger it's something maybe he would not have written himself, but he's so adept at seeing what was on the page and then turning those into visual and audio jokes in the film form. I love what he does because nothing is just there because he needs to get it out. Like every single beat of every scene 
has a joke in it or has some flourish that's inventive, that's delightful, and that's entertaining. Yeah, the joke density and like even the visual jokes when there's no dialogue jokes being told. It's just everywhere you look, there is something that will grab your interest, even if it's in the background of a scene. So mm-hmm. anything else from this first section you want to talk about before we move on further into the story? Probably just 100 or 200 things, but we can move <laughs> on. Yeah, we can always circle back to them later. So at this point, Scott's friends convince him he has to break up with Knives, who is crushed but vows to get him back. Scott then fights Evil X number two, skateboarder slash action movie star Lucas Lee, played by a pre-Captain America Chris Evans. Next up is vegan bass player Todd Ingram, played by Brandon Routh who plays in the band of Scott's own ex, Envy Adams, who is played by Brie Larson. A lot of superheroes in this section. Totally. Then he defeats the bi-furious Roxy Richter, played by Mae Whitman. All the strife with the exes cause Scott's and Ramona to get into a fight, and their relationship is on the rocks at this point. Love to see Mae Whitman and Michael Sarah reuniting from their Arrested Development days and George Michael. Yes, very, Egg. Uh, I remember Egg very well. Egg. Was there a her joke in this movie? I don't remember. I don't think so, right? I don't know. I don't think so. I could be wrong. I'm sure we're going to get yelled at if I am. <laughs> Please yell at us. Correct all the Please. thousand mistakes in this episode. Chris Evans, just absolutely a lord in this movie. Just given a great performance as Lucas Lee. Yeah. He's delightful. I thought maybe it's a little bit of a riff on Jason Lee. It's a good point. Another pro skateboarder who became a movie star. Not quite as hunky Jason Lee, our, our beloved beaver from Dreamcatcher, episode three. Poor old beaver. But he, yeah, he does not quite have the, the muscle tone of Chris Evans, but still a pro skateboarder turned actor with the last name Lee. Suspicious. It's kind of hard to ignore the similarities. I think there's no, something you might, there. No, you might have something there. Brandon Routh, love to see him in a movie too. He's so fun in this. I don't know why his career didn't have, you know, more prominent leading man roles. I thought he was a pretty good Superman in a pretty bad movie. And he's just, he's got great comedic timing in this. Not sure how I feel about him absolutely just punching the shit out of knives in one scene, though. That's painful. That was a rough scene. (laughs) This movie seems to have a bit of a a weird relationship with, like, male-on-female violence. I mean, I think that Edgar Wright's heart is in the right place. Just in general, he goes through, not just with the, the violence part, but with a lot of the parts of the story... You can see him making an effort to sort of qualify everything, to justify everything, and to make everyone do things for the right reasons. That one incident really kind of comes out of nowhere. It's kind of saved by the performance of young Neil when he says you punch the highlights out of her hair. It's that line delivery is so good that you forget that you just watched a sort of brutal bit of violence. Yeah. Yeah. I was immediately like, oh my God. And then young Neil's line comes in and and I was like, ah, like that's a really funny line. It's a funny like visual gag. So yeah, he definitely tries to lighten the tone, but still it was like when he first just punched her, I was like, oh my goodness. I mean, but, and then in that sense, it justifies the killing, right? Scott is, as you said, forced to kill all these people. And at least he sort of earned it in that way. Scott Pilgrim just doubles the murder rate of Toronto in like three (laughs) weeks. It's a crime spree. Literal crime spree. He also just, he kills Roxy by giving her too furious of an orgasm. Yes. Which do you think Michael Sarah was like, what if I gave her an orgasm so powerful she died? And Edgar Wright was like, sure, man, whatever makes you happy, dude. She imagined this, the male ego involved in like, what if she comes so hard she dies because I touched her. <laughs> I felt like that was another solution to like, how does Scott fight a girl without having to punch her? In the first half of that fight, Ramona grabs his arms and puppets him so that it's really her doing the punching. And then it ends with a, instead of a violent act, with a creepily sexual act, but still it avoids at least some of the what would have might have otherwise been more problematic aspects to that confrontation. And it was a nice moment that gives Ramona some agency. There's a few spots in the movie where they clearly recognize that 
they might have a problem with her being more of a plot device than a character. So they try Mm -hmm. to give her some agency over what happens and the outcomes of these things. That was a relationship that at least she owned and she talked about, whereas she seems really detached from the other exes that show up. Right, right. Let's talk a little bit about Brie Larson as N.B. Adams in this movie. How did you find her? She's fun. She has this funny role where she has to do a lot with her looks because she shows up as a real life version of her poster and, and she pulls it off well. She just brings that attitude. According to IMDb, and of course, take this with a grain of salt like anything you find in IMDb trivia, but she modeled her character's performance after porn stars, just like the way they speak in the dialogue sections of of adult movies. And she thought that energy kind of matched her character. So that's what she adopted. I'm a big fan of hers in almost everything. And this was kind of a breakout role for her, too. She also sang Black Sheep. That was her voice in the actual movie, not on the soundtrack. If you go pull up the soundtrack, it is the metric is the band singing it. But in the movie, you get to hear her singing voice. And she's actually released a couple albums. Yeah, she pulls it off. And yeah, I read that too, that she, before her acting career took off, she was making records. I think she's made one in the last, like in between this movie and Captain Marvel, she actually did release one. Maybe. Oh, okay. Don't, again, please yell at me if I'm wrong. But I, I thought a vi- nice visual gag was Lucas Lee's grind speed was measured in kilometers per hour instead of miles. Yeah, that was a cool, because they had to really, they had to be so creative so that all the fights were not straight kung fu battles and ending with the biggest punch you could think of to top the last biggest punch. Right. There's oh. six big fights in this movie. And if they were all just martial arts battles, I think it would get numbing. Right. So they have to infuse some creativity and some humor into the outcomes, which they definitely do in his scene, just basically calling him a chicken until he does this grind that is impossible to do without dying. <laughs> so so I guess you can't really rack that up as a murder for Scott. It's more of like a negligent homicide. I don't know. Reckless endangerment. I don't know what the charges. Reckless would be. endangerment. Maybe we've got Dreamcatcher's own. Speaking of Dreamcatcher, Thomas Jane showing up in this movie. He's now on the board for multiple appearances in Blast own episodes. Congrats. He's one of the vegan police. That was a funny bit just with the finger guns and the whole story of it. That was just a really another like unexpected thing. And I don't know what I don't know what Thomas Jane's cameo appearance meant to anybody else, especially at the time. To me, it means something because I know him from these other shows and movies. So it was kind of funny just to see his face and his performance. And then the way they then they de-veganize. What's his name? Todd Ingram. Todd Ingram. And then the funniest joke in that scene is the end to me. The way they high five each other on the way back out through the hole in the wall. It's just so, so silly and so perfectly executed. Clifton Collins Jr. is the other member of the vegan police. He's great in Westworld, if anybody's watched that show. Ah, that's Um, where I've seen him. Yeah, he's a big part of the first season. First couple seasons, maybe. It's been a while since I've watched season two. But yeah, the vegan police gag definitely works and love Tom Jane. He is one of the patron saints of this podcast already. And we're not done with him yet, ladies and gentlemen. Come back to us. That pretty much wraps up this section. Let's move on to the uh, finale of the movie. Yeah, so there's a big, long final section. Starting with the final round of the Battle of the Bands. Scott and Sex Bomb defeat X's five and six together, who are twin DJs Kyle and Ken Katianagi. Then the promoter, Gideon Graves, played by Jason Schwartzman, turns out to be none other than Ramona's seventh and final evil X. She breaks up with Scott to get back with Gideon. Gideon then offers Sex Bomb a record deal, which they take, except not Scott. He quits the band instead. Later, shortly after, Sex Bomb are playing their first big show at Gideon's new club, which he just opened in Toronto. Scott goes down there to confront him, and there's a major battle sequence. Knives shows up, actually, to fight Ramona. Gideon kills Scott, which is a little shocking, but Scott comes back, thanks to an extra life, owns up to all his mistakes, and then all the good guys team up to finish off Gideon once and for all. Then Knives concedes that Scott and Ramona actually belong together, and they decide to try again. Yeah. 
like you said, a lot going down in the scene. Not maybe not plot wise, but just a lot of big action set pieces in this section of the movie. Gideon, which I think the Honest Trailers YouTube channel referred to as Hipster Kilgrave, which is a very apt description. Uh-huh. If you've watched uh, Jessica Jones, <laughs> is uh, just perfectly hateable. Jason Schwartzman really <laughs> like turning up the smarmy factor. Just a huge douchebag. No, not Jason Schwartzman, to be clear. I don't think he's a douchebag. <laughs> I don't know him personally, but Gideon no. Graves just instantly you want to punch him. You totally root against him immediately just from his kind of over friendliness and just that too cool for school type vibe he tries to put out. Yeah. And he does seem to be exercising some kind of mind control over Ramona when she gets back with him. They focus a lot on her collar that she seems to be wearing. She's got a little chip. She's chipped up. She must have got the vaccine. You got that 5G oh, yeah. in her. But so this whole section is basically one big long fight scene. We see Sex Babam kind of beaten down now, all wearing matching outfits, very corporate. Yes. Rock band. They Kim seems out. distraught. Her soul, you can see she's got the thousand yard stare. I mean, we one thing we should mention, Kim is an absolute highlight in this movie. She didn't actually make a lot of appearances in our factual synopsis of the story, but she's an anchor and she does so much for the movie. She's kind of the heart in some ways of the film. Do you feel like that? Like she's she's the person that you most relate to because she's so real. She's so real and she's also there to kind of call out Scott's bullshit at every turn, which That's true. me as an audience member was like is he really doing this? And then she would be there to be like, to say pretty much what I was thinking. So uh-huh. I feel like Edgar Wright was aware of Scott's shortcomings as a protagonist and kind of put Kim in that position to wink at the audience. Like we know he's not that great. Just kind of give him a chance. Yeah. And, and Alison Pill just, yeah, rocks that performance. She didn't, she doesn't blink in the movie, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Edgar Wright really wanted her to have like some intensity in her performance. He was like, try not to blink at all during the takes if you can. Yeah, don't say that actors uh, don't have to do hard, difficult things. They have easy jobs. I don't know. Could I not blink? Now that you mention that, I'm keeping track of how often I'm blinking, and I blink a lot. My eyes hurt already. Yeah, I'm trying to do it. Nope, can't do it. Gotta blink. (laughs) Sorry. So Gideon, also another reason to hate him, just casually racist towards knives in this scene. Calls her Kung Pao Chicken. Oh, yikes. That's not great. No. We don't that. I mean, I'm sure Edgar Wright knew that was a racist thing to say, and is just trying to get us to hate Gideon a little more. So mission accomplished. That's true. What do we think about Nega Scott being a nice guy Then when he fights the evil version of himself? Do we think that's a commentary on the fact that Scott kind of sucks? I think it works that way. For me, it was more of just like a fake out joke, right? Because you just got through this incredibly long, exhausting fight scene that actually happens twice, right? He fights the whole scene once, he dies, comes back to life, relives the whole thing. And then you're like, oh no, that wasn't the final boss. So it was kind of just like a cool callback to the beginning of the movie when Scott and Knives are playing their ninja video game together so happily. And so it was a funny, like a way to make a commentary on just the weight of the of the fight scenes that we just lived through to have this one deflate. Yeah, and for a movie that's so heavily riffs on like video game culture, fighting an evil version of yourself at the end of a video game is like a pretty, pretty common trope, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially if you play like RPG games, Final Fantasy stuff. That's like it comes up a lot in those type of RPG games. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was just another layer of reference and joke that Edgar Wright works in that works if you know the reference, but also works if you don't. You don't need that extra information for the joke to land. But if you have it, it just makes it that much richer of an experience. Yeah. And he looked scary as heck. Like yeah. I was like scared when that, I was like, oh my God, no. With the glowing big, eyes. Yeah, yeah. It's creepy. And then that made it that much funnier when they were buds. Yeah. It was a nice moment. And I think Scott does go on a bit of a hero's journey in this film. So I don't mind him starting out as this 
kind of unlikable character because he does seem to grow. And I think the movie makes a smart choice of having him pull the katana out of his chest, finding the power of love and then losing and winning when he finds the power of was it self-respect. Yes. So I think that's a good commentary on how movies tend to treat whirlwind romances. Maybe they're not what you really need to get your life together. <laughs> no, that was one of the smartest parts for a movie where the, the subtext is, I mean, it's a martial arts action movie, but it's a relationship movie. And sometimes it's hard to tell the intended relationship between the two. Is it a metaphor? Is it just a device for an excuse to have fight scenes? And that's part where it's sort of cemented like, oh, no, actually, we thought about this. We have an interesting take on what's really at stake in this character's lives. Right. It's almost preemptively combating the criticism that Ramona is just a manic pixie dream girl and isn't really much of a character at all. It kind of preemptively gets ahead of that by doing so. So, yeah, I thought that was a good little twist. And yeah, and we can talk about the, the implications of that. So supposedly in the original version of this film, Scott gets back with knives and Ramona moves on. So that makes her more of just a device to sort of test Scott to teach him about himself and then turn back and rediscover that the real happiness lies in the sort of more innocent younger girl, which is, has its own weirdness if that ended up that way. Right. What do you think? What, what's the better ending in your opinion? Or is a third option that was not filmed the best ending? I actually thinking about both ways. I like this. I liked what it does for Knives because it elevates her to a stronger position where she's like, isn't reliant on discovering herself through this older dude that she probably shouldn't have been dating in the first place. Like she's sort of more self-reliant and she's grown at the end, which makes me feel better about her. And it, it makes sense to me just from a story perspective that Scott was dating Knives out of convenience for some kind of comfort in this simplistic relationship that was non-sexual and kind of non-anything. And that as soon as Ramona enters, he's obsessive about her. He pursues her and he sort of grows and finds that there's different than he thought he needed to be, but that he can still pursue that thing. So it made sense to me. Yeah. I think having him end up with knives is not the way to go. Whichever way you look at it, 22 and 17, it feels weird. Yeah. It's not, we don't want, we don't want a character we're rooting for to like voluntarily make that choice at the end of the movie. 22 and 17 is not 27 and 22 like it's five years but not all five-year gaps are created equal so i i honestly don't know if it would have been best for scott to end the movie alone but with some new sense of being secure in himself i think that might have been the best ending but i understand that audiences are going to want some kind of happy ending with a relationship between Scott and Ramona because they just spent all this time fighting for this relationship and to just kind right. of abandon it. It does feel a little bit like a cop out. I think that's if we were looking at the characters as real people, I think they'd be better off without each other. Like yeah. Knives, Scott and Ramona, all three go their separate ways. But for movie's sake, yeah, you do kind of want to have a definitive No, They stayed together because they went through all this. Why would they just abandon it now? Yeah. And I say, I mean, very honestly, I'm part of that audience that wants a happy ending. So when I when I meet a director who is willing to give me something happy to leave the theater with, I appreciate that. Yeah. So I don't have a big issue with Ramon and Scott ending up together. I do think it was nice that Knives got to essentially turn him down by saying I'm too cool for you because she totally is Knives rules. I hope her and young Neil had a nice relationship. Young Neil's a prince. Sad to say Johnny Simmons, who plays young Neil, does not seem to be acting anymore. I think he's left the biz. Oh, interesting. If you look up his credits, he has not done anything recently. And he was not at the reunion either, the table read that they did. Oh, well, that's a loss for us. But I hope he's happy whatever he's doing because he was so good in this. So obviously this movie came out. It did not set the world on fire as far as the box office is concerned. The people that saw it 
really loved it. 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I bet if you looked at more recent reviews, that number would be even higher. Yeah. It's really kind of gained steam as a cult classic and Mm -hmm. just a massive following now. And you saw that with the response to that kind of table read they did where they got all the original actors or all that they could wrangle for a little Zoom table read. For the 10th anniversary, they got right. just about everybody back. Yeah. Even Chris Evans took time out of his Captain America schedule to participate. And the only ones they the only ones I couldn't get were Kieran Culkin and Brie Larson and Johnny Simmons, obviously, like we just mentioned. Miss so. Kieran, because he's so I mean, you can kind of go down the cast and go, oh, that person is actually the highlight of the movie for me. And it keeps changing, but he's gotta be right up there and one of everybody's favorite characters in this movie. I don't know when it was when I realized Kieran Culkin is like he basically is doing the Elizabeth Olsen thing where he wasn't the most famous sibling in his uh-huh. acting family, but now he's just grabbed the mantle of MVP of the Culkin family. Yes, he's carrying the load. He fucking rocks on Succession, too. If you watch that show, he's yeah. just an absolute delight. I don't know if I'd call him a delight, actually. He's a monster, but, you know, he's great yeah, he's, at it. He's hot. I guess I didn't, I didn't really connect him on the first time through, but coming back to it now after having seen him in Succession, where he's wonderful, but also really hard pill to swallow it was great to see him be uh sort of a pill in this movie but an actually really lovable kind of like oh now i get to love kieran culkin because he's so cool in this he could be like a young roman like he hasn't quite turned over to the dark side yet maybe he's trying to make it on his own so he's living in this crappy basement apartment but then he goes back to his dad eventually we could make that work but him heckling crash and the boys is a highlight of this movie for me too just (laughs) from the stands yeah crash and the boys is a great little scene at the battle of the bands eric newtson who plays Crash, I guess, the lead singer of Crash and the Boys. He was on a show, Jericho, that I really enjoyed. Okay. I always thought he was a standout and wanted to see him in more stuff. So when I went back and rewatched this, I was like, oh, yeah, Eric Knudsen. Good for him, dude. Like, he's got this iconic mini role that everyone loves. You want to dive into the music of the film a little bit and kind of talk about the songs and who wrote what and how that I mean, all worked out? I'm not hip enough, but let's just try. I'll see if I can keep my head above water. So the Sex Bob-omb songs were primarily written by Beck. Which is interesting because I feel like they have a propulsive like garage punk type quality that I don't typically associate with Beck's music. Yeah, he was able to write them in character for this band and not as Beck songs, which would have been weird. But the Sex Bob-omb songs fucking rule, right? Like, yeah. aren't they so good? It's so good. I mean, We Are Sex Bob-omb, which is the first song you hear from them in the movie, is just an absolute jam. Then you've got Threshold which we referenced at the in the intro of this movie podcast. Um, Garbage Truck. These are all songs I go back to all yes. the time. They're just absolute jams. Yeah, you can see those like in in like the garbage. I'm probably because I didn't hear the lyrics to the other ones, but like Garbage Truck and one other has some Beck moments in the lyrics and the rhymes and the sort of absurdism that sneaks in. But they're still their Sex bob songs and they're great. Yeah, like they've got a fully formed sound, which for a band that was invented for this graphic novel, but then only really put to music for the movie. It's pretty impressive how like you could hear a song and be like, that's a Sex bob song. They're not just an assortment of songs. They feel like they belong to these characters. And that's why I think it was important to have the actual cast play the songs and sing the songs like Mark Webber sings those songs, those Sex Bob-omb songs. Yeah. Play Stephen Stills awesome. in the movie. He fucking rules. Great performance in this. So good. I'm geeking so, out over this movie. I just love it so much. <laughs> He's so natural in it. It's such a, it's a particular character and it's just him. Like maybe it helps to me because I don't know him from other stuff, but that's one of those things where you're like, oh yeah, that's Stephen Stills. That's the talent. He's got like stage presence too. He plays this kind of like a nervous, insecure guy when they're off stage and then he gets on stage and just fucking rips. So yeah, it he's feels been really in the, real, he, like that's you new guys in bands like that. Did you ever see Green Room? Oh, Green Room is fucking awesome. Another movie where he plays a musician. It's like a punk band that gets 
trapped in like a neo-Nazi venue that they didn't realize they were playing before they got there. And so they play the famous punk song, Nazi punks fuck off. And then basically have to hide and run for their lives from the punks at the, it's a, one of the most tense movies you can ever see. Okay. It's just a, your heart rate will not go down below like a hundred for the entire time this movie is on, but it's so much fun. And that's, but he's in that. So yeah, maybe he's got like a, little cottage industry playing like punk musicians yeah i think i need to watch that now just for him because i do want to i feel like i want to see more of that guy yeah he rolls in that movie and just in general so definitely check out green room that goes for the listeners too if you haven't this is not just me recommending stuff to ian you guys are listening check it out if you haven't seen it i'll share my recommendations that i got personally from john and i mean i thought that like having an acoustic guitar that's distorted like gave it a really interesting sound just very distinctive sound They, they really worked on making every band sound different and felt super real to me. Like I felt like I knew that band that had the lead guitarist with the acoustic guitar who would be constantly feeding back on stage and torturing the sound man. But like, that was his thing. Right. (laughs) They say Michael Sarah had to dumb down his playing for these songs because he's an accomplished bass guitarist and, and has been for a long time, but his bandmates, Allison Pill and Mark Weber learned their instruments for the movie apparently. So he had to kind of revert back to his earlier days. And you see that when he has the bass battle with Todd, Todd's really kind of throwing some chops into his little (laughs) bass battle. And and Scott is just kind of playing scales and like some more rudimentary stuff. He's just doing some riffs. And then uh, yeah, Todd comes in over the top with some beautiful lines, throwing some triplets in and stuff. I thought Todd had some good bass presence. I think Brandon Routh learned how to play the bass for this movie too. And he, he did a great job, obviously. Yes. Clearly put in the time. And then Crash and the Boys for these three second songs that they have. Uh, Broken Social Scene wrote these songs. Broken Social Scene, a very accomplished band in their own right. Just came in to write some, you know, super short songs for Crash and the Boys that absolutely rule. Yeah, there's almost, I mean, one of the things that's part of this movie's story, especially the story of it as a bomb, is that the budget was so big. And I have to assume it's because there was so much attention to detail in every aspect of the movie. Right. Bringing all these people on as part of the crew to help with the music direction of the movie, I'm sure wasn't super cheap. Not that Broken Social Scene is a huge band, but, you know, they have a a pretty big following in their own right. Beck is a huge superstar, obviously. Metric, pretty big band. They brought all these people on to help. They did get some tax credits from Canada to film there that helped recover some of the budget. But still, I, I think they maybe wound up spending $65 million on this after the tax credits and still only made $48 million worldwide. Factor in marketing and ticket sales that go to the theaters. This movie lost a bunch. So Metric's an interesting story. Their song, Black Sheep, that Envy Adams sings in her performance scene was kind of like a deep cut of theirs. They'd been performing live for a couple years before the movie was released, and they decided, I guess, lend it to the movie as a The Clash of Demon Head song, which is just a killer name for a band. Yeah. Also an old Nintendo game. Yeah, you have the Sex Bob-omb reference, and then you have The Clash of Demon Head, which is an old Nintendo game. So video game references everywhere. So that is Brie Larson singing it, as we mentioned. But on the soundtrack, it's the Metric version, which if you guys don't know Metric, check out some of their other stuff because they rule as well. Yeah, I have to check. I have so much homework from this movie. Checking yeah. out old video games and bands that I didn't know. I wouldn't recommend going and trying to play The Clash of Demon Head. I doubt it holds up. <laughs> but then even Bill Hader is the voiceover guy in this movie. Like every single role has a ringer in it, even if it's just a voice. Yeah, that's what's weird is and only some of them were the big stars that we know. So many of them. We're not. It's hard to sort out if you go back and watch it now because you go, oh, how did they? This movie is wall to wall faces and voices in uh, in Bill Hader's case, but they weren't all. So there was some incredible foresight on the part of Edgar Wright to cast people like 
like Brie Larson. This was like a very early role. She was like 18 or something. She yeah, she was super young. Aubrey Plaza was still you know, like an unproven star, unproven actor. Even like guys like Nelson Franklin, who plays Michael in the movie. He's the guy who knows everybody and uh, right. identifies Ramona based on the squiggles, that, which is just a laugh out loud moment every time. But he, I recognized him immediately. He's popped up in everything from like The Office to New Girl. He's everywhere. Yeah. But just good, like the right actor for the part, but also people you recognize will be happy to see. And we didn't even talk about Anna Kendrick, who hadn't gone super big yet. Um, no, so I wonder when in her career did this happen? Keep, keep I think going. it happened pretty, from when I read something that like, yes, yeah, she hadn't done Pitch Perfect yet, unless I'm wrong. I may need correcting on this one. No, you're right. No, you're absolutely right. She had not done Pitch Perfect yet. Pitch Perfect was 2012. Yeah. I mean, we didn't even talk about her. She's so good as God's sister. She's like her and Kieran, like uh, this tour de force of back and forth comedy bits. So quippy. Yeah. The quips in this movie are unstoppable. So I guess what she had done before this was just the the Twilight movies. She has a pretty decent sized role in. And then Up in the Air, I think, was her big breakout with George Clooney. But this was her like really flexing her comedy muscles and just stealing the show in a lot of scenes. She's wonderful. There's so many good performances from women in this movie, which is just another great aspect of it. It's like it's a movie about a dude, but I think that the women are what really make this movie. They steal the show. Absolutely. Let women be funny in your movies, you fools. Follow Edgar Wright's lead. He knows what he's doing. But the, uh, yeah, just every single performance in this movie lands for me. I don't, I, there's no one I would call out as kind of missing the mark. Can't think of anything. So we talked a little bit about the box office for this movie. Even right before the movie was released, Michael Sarah did an interview with Time Out London and admitted that he thought the movie was going to be a tricky one to sell and that he didn't know how you convey that movie in a marketing campaign. I could see it being something that people are slow to discover. So it almost seems like they were prepared for it to kind of be not connect with everyone in the theater and become a little bit of a cult classic on its own through home video or streaming or whatever down the road. It's almost like it's an over budget indie movie, but it's because it had that budget. It looks beautiful. It sounds awesome. It has chock full of everything you would want in it. But you wonder, could there have been a $25 million version of this movie that was more sort of hard scrabble and DIY? Maybe, but I, I don't know that I'd want to watch it as much. You know, yeah. I think maybe this movie just had to lose some money so we could get this great relic of a time when yeah. people were given budgets to make these kind of movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, thankfully, we don't have to cry over it now as a sort of lamentable unsung thing because it's not unsung. It's beloved. So it doesn't feel too bad. I mean, that money's water under the bridge and the movie is properly respected. Right. I mean, so let's dig into kind of what happened in 2010 that maybe gave this movie a harder time at the box office. So tough opening weekend. You had The Expendables, which is taking a lot of the young male demographic that would have theoretically gone to see this movie. Eat, Pray, Love also released this day. So that's taking a big chunk of the audience. And then you had The Other Guys and Inception were released previously, but we're still putting up pretty big numbers. So especially Inception is taking a lot of the young demographic that would be attracted to this movie. It just had a rough time. I wonder if moving the release date could have helped. But this movie ended up being the 96th highest grossing movie of 2010, which is a fucking nightmare to consider. So I thought it'd be funny if we kind of each picked a few movies from 2010 that made more money than this and just gave our thoughts on them. So do you have one uh, queued up you want to hit? Yeah, I found it interesting that more people wanted to see the M. Night Shyamalan movie Devil. Now, there's a twist that I didn't see coming. Wow. 
people would rather be trapped in an elevator with the literal devil than in a theater with Scott Pilgrim. What does that say about them? I actually kind of like the movie Devil. I don't hate it. It's weird and it's 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 got a weird tone. And I don't even know if M. Night Shyamalan directed it. He might have just produced it. He or did. Yeah, it. He, it was his story and he produced it. But there was another screenwriter and another director. Yeah, but I kind of dig that movie. But again, it, it is not better than Scott Pilgrim. It's not definitely Scott, did yeah, not deserve on, to make more money than Scott Pilgrim. Cats and Dogs, The Revenge of Kitty Galore made $112 million in 2010. Oh my God. Just what we needed. A sequel nine years after the first Cats and Dogs that works in a old James Bond reference to pussy in the title. And was there a lot of unresolved plot holes from the first Cats and Dogs? Did we need the sequel a decade later that somehow made $112 million? (laughs) Fuck out of here. Yeah. I mean, uh, you mentioned The Expendables. I mean, sure, that was a big budget thing and more people saw The Expendables than this movie. But I feel like that proves that people actually like action movies with people constantly fighting as long as those people are old as shit. Yeah, just a bunch of geriatric fucking action stars. So that was a lesson for Scott Pilgrim. Get older, dude, if you want anyone to pay attention to you. Maybe like 30 years from now when Michael Sarah's in his 60s, we can have Scott Pilgrim versus the world reboot. Yeah, put on a beret and a, and a flak jacket and make those dollars. Instead of pulling a katana out of your chest, you pull like an M16 or something. I don't know. <laughs> Alice in Wonderland was also released in 2010. The Tim Burton, Johnny Depp one. It made a billion dollars. What? 10 years later, nobody gives a about this movie. Nobody remembers this movie. It has no cultural footprint. This movie sucks. <laughs> this movie. How did it make a billion dollars? Are you kidding me? We're definitely, really earn, we're definitely earning the explicit rating on this episode, but this pisses me off. Like That's it's really just, strange to me. I mean, I've never liked the concept of Alice in Wonderland. So I was immediately repulsed by the idea of the movie and the the marketing did nothing to change that. So without a billion dollars, it just blows my mind. It hits that thing I hate. It's just regurgitating old IP and throwing a bunch of money at it and people showed up for it, but pisses me off. All right, you go. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of uh, venerable old IP, more people went to see the Marmaduke movie, Marmaduke the dog. Starring Owen Wilson. And uh, frankly, all I can say to that is, wow. 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 Owen Wilson's first appearance on the list. Not his <laughs> last, because my third movie, Little Fockers. Oh, no. First of all, this movie can go fuck itself. That joke about the name Fockers stopped being funny immediately as soon as it was introduced in the first Meet the Parents. A movie which I didn't even like the original Meet the Parents. I just find that kind of awkward cringe humor, like very difficult to sit through. All it is is like terrible things happening to Ben Stiller for two (laughs) hours. It's just not fun for me. But then the formula grew more and more stale. The sequel was terrible. This might be the worst movie of both Robert De Niro and Ben Stiller's career. I can't think of a worse one for either. I don't know if you can. It still made $300 million. Oh, wow. They had a $100 million budget. How did this piece of shit cost $100 million to make? Is it just the cast, I guess? I guess Robert, probably. They had to throw case. a bunch of money at Robert De Niro and Ben Stiller to get them to show up. I don't blame I mean, them. Make your money. No. But f- this movie and I never want to see it. I'm yeah. really mad right now. So, yeah, here's some things. John gave you some recommendations earlier. Now he's recommending that you never see any of these yeah. pieces of junk. I'm recommending if you see it like a DVD copy of any of these movies in somebody's house, just throw them in the garbage. Do them a favor. I drank a big cold brew before we recorded this. Now I'm getting like, I feel my heart rate getting up because I'm so angry. I wanted Scott Pilgrim to do better. Be careful. Be careful. We still have to get through final thoughts. Yeah, because this movie was so beloved, even upon release, everyone that saw it liked it. So I don't think it had any real lasting negative impact on anyone's career. 
I think everyone came out of this relatively unscathed. So Wright's next movie after this was The World's End, which did okay. It had a bigger budget than the rest of the Cornetto trilogy, right. uh, Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead. It had a $20 million budget because it's got like kind of an alien invasion plot going on in the background. It ended up making $46 million, which is not a great return on that budget, but still probably made a small profit. And then he was pegged to make Ant-Man. He got his huge big break with Marvel, but you know he, he famously said, I wanted to make an Ant-Man movie. I don't think Marvel wants to make an Edgar Wright movie and left the project over creative differences. I guess they were micromanaging him a little too much. Yeah, I guess he's not a fit for the full-on studio where you need continuity of style and and tone. You didn't didn't recognize my great pun there. I said that they were micromanaging him on the Ant-Man movie. (laughs) Ant-Man shrinks down. I'm sorry. The joke was so (laughs) small, I didn't see it. It was too subtle. (laughs) But uh, yeah, but we don't know how much of that movie ended up being his vision, but it was a huge hit. And I think he has to get some of the credit for that. Um, And then he had Baby Driver, which was finally like his big breakout, massive hit, made 200 and something million dollars, I think, and just really started some careers. Aiza Gonzalez got her start there. John Hamm took on a role we had never seen of him as like this super serious, tough guy killer. It had, I don't remember who played the boss of all the crooks in that movie. I can't picture his face or his name. We're just not going to say it. Jamie Foxx, just like Jamie Foxx playing against type as just like a real kind of- He was of pretty nasty in that. Evil, like, yeah, threatening guy. He usually is a little more jovial in his movies. It seemed like kind of the more serious take on his motherfucker Jones character from Horrible Bosses, <laughs> like, but just, yeah, an awesome movie and it feels very Edgar Wrighty. Sarah- He did kind of fade from public view a little bit after this movie, but that seems to be mostly by choice. He did a lot of stage work, returned to TV for Arrested Development, and also had a stint on Twin Peaks, which was interesting. His movie before this was Youth and Revolt, which came out eight months before Scott Pilgrim, and that also didn't make any money, lost a little bit of money. So I think there was kind of this growing narrative that he couldn't open a movie on his own. He needed to be like a supporting player, have another big name with him to get people to show up for it. But then he was great in Molly's game as basically Tobey Maguire. That's kind of who he was supposed to be in that movie. Yeah, I forgot he was. I liked that movie and I forgot he was in it. Does that a speak for him or against him? I think it speaks for him, honestly, because it shows he's a little more capable of like disappearing into a role these days than maybe he was when he was younger, where it always felt like he was Michael Sarah, no matter what it was. Yeah, I think that's what sort of shaped a lot of his career is that this in the, he was Michael Sarah, And then in this movie, he was peak Michael Sarah. He was super Michael Sarah. He was even nega Michael Sarah for a minute. And then people were like, okay, but can we really swallow anymore? Right. If you look at his filmography too, it's kind of jarring how often it shows him playing himself. <laughs> like it's Michael Sarah, and then the, the character name is just Michael Sarah or himself. It's uh-huh. like, oh wow, he really got typecast as himself for a while there. But yeah, he basically is doing a riff on, he's player X in Molly's game, which was supposed to be an amalgamation of Tobey Maguire, Ben Affleck, and Leonardo DiCaprio from the Uh real life Molly's game. But by all accounts, he's mostly doing the Tobey Maguire thing. So Tobey Maguire, if you want to drop in your allegedly voice, real dipshit in real life, apparently. Allegedly. Apparently he's a real, real asshole. Allegedly. If you watch Molly's game, you'll understand. There's a lot of stories about Tobey Maguire out there. So he's never going to be a guest on this podcast. Allegedly, he will not be a guest. So final thoughts on Scott Pilgrim. What do you think? Why did it fail? What are your thoughts on it? I was wondering, this is maybe not a good as a wrap-up final thought, but as a thought, it's so like one reason that it maybe just had a hard time finding an audience. And I wondered, did it have a slight John Carter effect? Here's a movie that's about a guy's name, very straightforward sounding 
boring name. Scott Pil- I mean, Pilgrims are old school, man. Who wants to see a movie about Pilgrims? Especially if I'm a young kid who's into indie rock. So like, yeah, that, that raises the John Carter question. And again, I kind of felt that in not knowing who Scott Pilgrim was supposed to be. And sometimes that can be off-putting. And I think that actually happened to me in the first encountering the marketing for this movie, seeing the poster. I'm like, oh, it's a music movie. Is it about a real band? Is that Michael Sarah? Sure. No, it's not a real band. But am I supposed to know who Scott Pilgrim is? And these are like petty sort of emotional states that go through your head, but they affect your impression of whether you want to go see that movie. And I, I felt like a little bit weirded out by it, like by what I didn't know and what I didn't know if I was supposed to know. No, that's absolutely valid to call out. Those kind of knee-jerk initial reactions are what kind of drives the marketing of a movie. And if you saw the name Scott Pilgrim and you kind of were like, oh, am I going to go see like a bunch of dudes with buckles on their hats <laughs> versus the world? Is this is this like about the the Mayflower and the New World discovery and, you know, <laughs> battling the Native Americans? <laughs> like it could be confusing. I agree. The poster's a little subtle. It's just Scott Pilgrim rocking out with his bass guitar. It doesn't yeah. really tell you a lot about the movie. I think the trailers did a, a solid job kind of getting across the tone of the movie and how it was going to be. But we've said it on this podcast a lot, as much as we can for a relatively young podcast, that these movies that kind of try to blend genres make for an enjoyable viewing experience a lot of the times, but they make makes them very hard to market for because you don't yeah. know what tone to really strike in your trailer because the, the movie doesn't really have a consistent level tone across. So this movie is taking its cues from all over martial arts movies, indie movies, rom-coms, music biopics, like everything kind of has its place here. And while that makes for a very fun and kinetic viewing experience, it makes it hard to kind of nail down what do you want to show people to get them into the theater. And not to pick apart the title too much, but again, also like you point out versus the world, pretty generic. This is actually a movie about young people and love relationships and figuring out their lives. But there's kind of no hint to that. Like it, it actually sort of favors the idea that this is a martial arts action video game movie that actually doesn't carry the subtext when maybe if you would have said, I don't know what you call it, Scott Pilgrim learns about love, Scott Pilgrim fights for his girlfriend. I don't know. Look, I don't get paid to do that job, but not uh, yet, but there could have, it could have worked away from helping people understand what they were coming to see. Yeah. I mean, it was based on the Scott Pilgrim's precious little life graphic novel and I don't know if that's a better title, but I think it's more indicative of the story of the movie. It would have given yeah a little more hint about what you're getting into. Although volume two is the world. None, I'm so, looking yeah. at the list of, of the six volumes. None of them really nails it, but I think Precious Little Life actually might have. But then people would have been frightened as I was when the fighting action broke out and people started dying in a shower of coins. So I don't know. Right. It's the same reason that it's hard to market for. It's hard to come up with a title that kind of nails down exactly what it is because it's so many different things and so many yeah. disparate elements make up this movie. How do you encapsulate all that in a movie title that has to fit on a poster? Yep. Unless you're it's doing tough. like a Borat title where it runs for like, <laughs> it's, you know, 240 words. I don't think you're going to be able to get across everything this movie's trying to do on a poster or with a title. So I think they went for the more minimalistic approach. They didn't want to pull a Fiona Apple and just no, cover they the wanna, whole album cover with words. They don't want to pull a Fiona Apple. So yeah, I'm super thrilled we got this movie at all. Um, yes. And I'm really glad it didn't hurt anyone's career by not making a boatload of money at the time. I'm sure it's turned a profit on DVD, Blu-ray sales, streaming, whatever by now, because it's become such a hallmark of a certain, like it's this generation's American graffiti. I feel like it's just a huge 
showcase for these young actors that would all go on to do incredible things. And it's still just a shit ton of fun. Every time you turn it on, you're going to have a good time. And I just, I want to go listen to the soundtrack right now. Yeah, we should probably uh, wrap up this episode. This was super fun. Yeah, I have had so much fun talking about this movie. How about you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I hope, I hope that people listening to it had a little bit of fun and are inspired like we are to go back and rewatch and re-listen and play the video games and get the comics and do all that stuff. It's oh, yeah. Great. I can't sign off without talking a little bit about the Scott Pilgrim video game that came out around the time of this movie. It's so much fun. You guys really? should check it out if you could find it. Yeah, it's really good. I know it was on the PlayStation Network. That's how I got it back in the day. I want to see if I can get it on PS5. I just got my I might fire it up and see if I can find it on there. That would be awesome. You got to post yeah. uh, a tweet about it if you do. I do. I absolutely will. So please tune in next week. We're going to be talking to Niles Abston about the 1999 Eddie Murphy, Martin Lawrence prison epic life. That's going to be a great episode. Please check that out and please rate, review, subscribe, whatever you got to do to keep Blast Zone in your life and on your feed. Please do that. Yeah, we really appreciate you guys. Shoot us a DM on Twitter if you have any questions and tune in next week. We'll be back in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone.